As we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, I'll ask you once again to bow with me for a word of prayer and ask God to attend to our time. Father, we do thank you for this day, this moment, another moment in our life here as sojourners on this earth that we might be together and open your word together, that we might learn from you and about you, that our lives would be changed because of this interaction. We know your spirit is among us, in us. We know that without that, we would understand nothing. And so we thank you for the gift that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we ask what the song said. Show us Christ. Attend to our time that we might know you more. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great time to be together once again this morning. And so I'll ask you to open your Bibles together to our study of Romans chapter 12. We are in Romans chapter 12. Last Lord's Day, we began to really scratch the surface of all that God is teaching us there in Romans chapter 12, at least at the beginning of it. And as we transition really from doctrine, the doctrine of all the teaching that we have heard from chapters 1 through chapter 11, and all that teaching and what it has meant to inform us and to undergird really this new section that we are now embarking upon beginning in chapter 12 and going all the way through chapter 16 whereby we are being exhorted by the Apostle Paul concerning how we are to live as Christians. If we will hear and begin to practice all that is here for us in these final chapters of Romans, we will indeed be children of God as He has intended us to be. Some of us might be sitting here this morning and saying, well, I thought I was doing that, and surely you may be doing that and doing very well at it in your own life. But we are all here as those who must learn to do better. None of us have arrived at it. And surely if we will practice the things for which God gives us here, and by God's grace in that practice, our lives will be what God has intended and will be used by God to affect the lives of others. We have come off chapter 11, whereby we learn that our lives and God bringing us into His kingdom is to have an effect on others, particularly in the plan of God upon the Jews. That God saved us as Gentile believers in order that those whom He has chosen as His Jewish family would be made jealous, jealous by what God has giving, given to us. And so if we live as God has intended us to live, it will certainly be used by God to that effect. So let us begin our time this morning by simply hearing the words recorded for us by Paul here in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, last Lord's Day, we learned that it is doctrine, teaching, 
precepts of God, the doctrine of God that shows us why we should live as Christians and also how it is that we should do it. And we could really add this morning that it is the Christian that is the only person in all of the world that can actually do that. The Christian is the only one who can actually do what God has commanded to be done. No one else can do what we hear in chapter 12 through chapter 16. No one can do what we are being exhorted to and will be exhorted to do over the next several months. No one else in the world can do it. It is ends in failure every time. Why? Because only the Christian has the power to do it. If you're a Christian here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have repented of your sins, you have embraced Him as your only Savior, there's nothing else that has helped you get in the kingdom because there is nothing else that will help you, then you have the power of God in you and you have the ability to do what God is asking. And we need not, or, or, and we do not need the scriptures before us to confirm this. God has given us the scriptures in order to confirm this. But all we have to do is look around at the world at large and see it is easy for us to see that there are plenty of people trying to do Christian things, trying to do religious activities, trying to keep themselves in some kind of moral way. There are plenty of people who know what it is they should be doing, and yet they do not do it. Why? Because knowledge of what is right is not enough. Knowing what is right to do is not enough to keep you doing it. The entire problem with humanity is not that they do not know what to do. The problem is that they have no power in them to actually do what they know. They have no power. And so here in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, we are not simply shown why we are to live this way, but we are also shown how we are to live this way. And so we can say that our duty as a Christian is an applied duty. It's an applied duty. In other words, our duty to obey, our Christian obedience to God is an applied duty that is born from a knowledge of who we are in the family of God. In other words, it is not a duty in order to make us part of the family of God or to show that we are equipped for the family of God in some kind of way and in hopes that maybe by my duty God will in fact bring me into His family. No, it is a applied duty. It is a duty that is born from a knowledge of who we are already in the family of God. And of course, that is... Through Jesus Christ as the only hope. So as Christians, those who are truly saved, we already are children of God. And that means that not only are we reconciled to God, not only are we forgiven by God, 
but we have been born again and we are actually enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. We have a new nature and the Spirit of God lives in us. And it is from that understanding and that reality that we can rightly look at these questions before us in our minds and give proper answers to the realities about Christian behavior. Why we do what we do. You see, far too often when it comes to living rightly before God, far too often we we see deficiencies in our life. And it's not bad to see deficiencies. It's, it's a good thing to evaluate and a good thing to see those deficiencies in our lives. But what we do with them can be the problem. We see a deficiency in our life, a place where we ought to be living differently, and we know we're not living what we ought to be living. And we begin to ask questions about, what is it I should be doing? Good question. What is it I should be doing? We begin then to make attempts at some kind of new behavioral pattern. Right? We see a pattern that isn't right. We go, okay, I'm going to make an adjustment. I begin to make attempts at some kind of new behavioral pattern. Some kind of life reformation. And we often begin strong. We often begin with all kinds of zeal, all kinds of energy. And we're very strong at it. And we go, okay. And yet, we find somehow that we just don't continue. And the sinful pattern continues. In fact, the sinful pattern even seems stronger than ever. When we've failed, we don't understand why it is we can't seem to obey in that area. Well, part of the reason is that we've forgotten to start the process with truly and believingly reminding ourselves of who we are. The problem is, oftentimes, we strive at something from our own energy, forgetting exactly who we are. The first thing that we must do, the first thing that must happen with us is that. And as we learned last time, as we were studying chapter 12, verse 1, the first motivation of our Christian living is born out in our minds. In other words, in what we know. What we know to be true and right about who we are. Therefore, we do not, as Christians, live according to our feelings. We do not live and make decisions and operate behaviorally according to how I feel in the moment. We do not follow our subjective impulses that come upon us. Those things have to be governed, those things have to be hemmed in by objective truth, by doctrine, by things that are objectively true and right, by things that have foundational boundaries and are on a solid ground of God's Word. We must know who we are and then live according to that knowledge. That is why Paul begins this way as he does in verse 1, where he says, I urge you... Therefore, right, my exhortation, my words to you about how you are to live are on the basis of an understanding of who you were and who you now are before God in Christ. 
You were dead. Now you are alive. And so Paul says our first motive to realize the motivation that we have to have first, the starting point of motivation is to realize that we were, we are who we are by the mercy of God. You see that? I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I hope we can hear Paul's heart in that. Live out your Christian lives from an understanding of the reality that who you are and where you are is according to the mercies of God. Sadly, sometimes we don't think we need it. We think we're where we are, not because God was merciful, but because God simply saw us and said, hey, I could use that person. I think I'll save them. No, but there, there's two different kinds of obedience. Obedience that is born out of an intellectual knowledge only in rote duty. And you, you have this rote duty going on when you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. This duty that, hey, I know God, and so therefore I'm going to carry out these duties simply by rote activity, doing religious things, but no understanding as to why. They have the knowledge, but they don't know why they do what they do. The assumption is holiness in it. The assumption is I'm pleasing and honoring the one that I say that I love, God. But they're just Pharisees. The other extreme is obedience born out of emotionalism. Or, or all feelings. We hear this oftentimes in our day and age. Follow, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Please don't do that. If you follow your heart, you're going to go right off the cliff. Right? Just follow your heart with no understanding. No understanding as to why you're doing it. And so there's the assumption there of holiness in it. You ask people, why do you do that? Well, it just felt good. It feels right. I have, oh, I love this. I have a peace with it. Wow. I mean, I have a, my flesh has peace with a lot of things that are sinful. Listen, true Christian living, the behavior we must have as believers is born from both of those sides. Intellectual knowledge, but an intellectual knowledge that understands the doctrinal truth that it's heard. And it's an understanding concerning the mercies of God. Who you are because God was merciful. So, true understanding of doctrine always moves the heart into action. If you say, I understand the things of God, and yet you're not moved into action, you need to rethink whether you understand the things of God. Notice, Paul says it's an understanding beginning with the mercies of God. You notice what he says? You notice he doesn't say that you've been shown a mercy of God. Paul doesn't say a mercy of God. He says that God continues to show you His mercy. In other words, His mercy is plural. It's it's numerous. We're to be motivated by an understanding of the continual mercies of God. 
That means that His mercy comes to us in different ways. It comes to us at different times. It comes to us every day. It comes to us repeatedly. Randy read this Friday night at our 40th celebration of the church. Lamentations 3.23 His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. The word compassions in the Hebrew is racham. It's... it's, uh, literally the idea of the womb of a woman that's that's the real idea behind it the place where an unborn child develops that protected zone where an unborn child develops the place of a person unable to help themselves that's the womb child develops there it's the place where They cannot help themselves. All the help coming to them is from someone else. It's a place really of pity. A place of continual compassions for that person. Of course, that's being destroyed in our world today. But in Scripture, it's a picture of how God sees us continually. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions are new every morning. Those who are in need of continual mercies, of continual pity, God continually has pity upon our condition. Do you ever think of yourself like that? As a Christian? Do you ever think continually God is seeing me? This is who I am. This is where my motivation begins. Understanding the reality that every day, every moment, every minute, every time I'm awake, every time I'm cognitive of my life here on this earth, I understand God is exercising His mercies toward me. His pity toward me. His compassion toward me. His sense in which He pities my condition here on this earth. Think about that. The Creator God looks down on His creation and us in particular and He sees our foolish sinfulness and our rebellion against Him. And He sees that. All that we have brought upon ourselves and He has pity on us. Paul says that's what ought to motivate you to live right. That's what ought to be the foundational base motivation for why you do what you do. It ought to motivate you in your Christian living, understanding all of his benefits to you by way of his saving you. They're a direct, they're an entire result of the mercy of God. The body of Christ. You look around this room, you see your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see those that sometimes get under your skin. Guess what? They are here by the mercy of God for you. They're a gift for you by the mercy of God. Your time in the Word of God, the Word of God itself is given to us by the mercy of God, born out of the pity of God that we might know Him. How do we treat that? How do we treat the body of Christ 
So let us not forget in totality or minute by minute, let us not forget that our justification is the result of God's pity on us. The reason that you and I stand before God in an innocent fashion as he looks at us through the body of his son Jesus Christ is simply because God had pity on us. Let us not forget that our sanctification in Christ and our future glorification with Christ is all because of God's mercies. And so Paul says, I'm exhorting you in light of everything that I've said to you up to this very point, everything you understand about the reality of God's wrath being upon men, everything you understand about faith being in Christ alone, everything you understand about justification by grace through faith alone, everything you understand about how you are to live according to the Spirit of God in you, how you're to respond, the fact that there is no condemnation over you because you're in Christ Jesus, the fact that you need to not carry your salvation with arrogance around the world and all kinds of places because you were once outside and now God has brought you inside and that salvation is being used by God in order to draw other people to himself. Don't carry all that. All of those benefits that you have are simply because God is merciful to you. We might even say it this way. Those who realize that God has given to them so much, they will show it in their lives, how they live. So Christian living isn't simply that we see sin as something stupid. It isn't simply that we look at sin and it's a contradiction of what we say we believe. Certainly that's true. But rather, Christian living is that we see sin and sinful living as an act of ingratitude toward God who has shown us such great mercy. Any kind of sinfulness is just ingratitude to God. If It's as if we are ready to take all the benefits from God. Oh God, thank you for all the benefits you've given me in salvation. Thank you for my justification. Thank you for my future glorification. Thank you for sanctifying me in Christ positionally and and changing my heart to love you. Thank you for all of that. And yet I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to give you one ounce of thanks for it. I'll take it all. But I give you no gratitude. That's what it's like. Therefore, beloved, when we live sinfully, we're no better at that very moment. We're no better at that very moment than the pagan who refuses to even acknowledge God nor give Him thanks. We're no better. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that we are even worse. Why? Because we know better. So, how do we begin then to live out this Christian life? How do we begin? Paul begins by saying, notice verse 1. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So that's the undergirding motivation. How, How does it now look in this first exercise of practice? I exhort you by the mercies of God to present... Your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service 
of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now here we get into the practical realities involved in the living of the Christian life. How we are to behave as Christians. The motive of the mercy of God, the mercies of your, in your life, all that God has given to you through His mercy, that being in our minds, that being solidified in our hearts, all of that is, the first, is first fulfilled. That, that reality, that, uh, that understanding, that motivation is fulfilled in the implementation, notice, of our complete surrender of ourselves to God. Paul says, present your bodies. And he means by that, present yourselves in totality. Present your mind, your physical body, and your spirit to God. All of you. All of you. And notice that Paul's using a picture from the Old Testament. He's using language of sacrifice. Present yourself, present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice. The sacrifice is both worship and its service. It's both of those. It's worship to God and it's service on behalf of God. We see that here in verse 1. It is a sacrifice that is spiritual service of worship. In other words, we as Christians present a sacrifice, and this sacrifice is both worship to God, and worship of God, and service to God, and service for God. When you go back to the Old Testament, particularly if you go back to the book of Leviticus, you see the sacrifices being made. You see the, the rules, the lists as to sacrifices and why sacrifices needed to be made. And it's exactly what is happening here, Paul is talking about. He's using the sacrifice language so that we get a proper understanding, a proper picture, that we have the proper weight upon us of understanding all that, it's, all that is being required here. This is exactly what is happening. It's worship of God. That's what the sacrifice was. It was worship of God, and it was service to God. And so Paul is using that picture to describe our Christian lives. And our new life as Christians is described in the same way. It is a life of service to God, and it is a life of worship of God. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Let's just think about the word present for a minute. Present. Peristemi in the original language. It's an important word. It's an interesting word. Present. Uh, In fact, we've seen it before in the book of Romans. If you go back just for a moment to chapter 6, just to kind of show you this. Paul used it in Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not go on, here it is, presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the idea of worship and service. 
down in verse 16. Do, not, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? There's the idea of the practical outworking of this idea of worship and service to God, presenting ourselves to the one we are obeying. Oftentimes, sadly, we present ourselves to sin. We carry out sinful things. We're not to do that. And then, of course, in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. Why? Because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In other words, you want to be set apart for God? You want to have a life set apart for God? Then present yourself, offer yourself, give yourself completely and solely and wholly over to the things of God. And you get the idea from all of those verses of the practical action of handing something over completely. Right? So when you come to chapter 12 and you read in verse 1 this idea, Paul brings this whole idea of sacrifice into it. Immediately, you're reminded of what it took to place a sacrifice, to come before God with your sacrifice. If it was an animal sacrifice, the animal is is given to the priest, the, the animal is laid on the altar. In other words, the animal is placed at the disposal of someone else, fully, wholly. And so what's Paul implying to us here? We are to put ourselves completely at the disposal of God. We are a sacrifice to God in the similar way that the animal was completely put on the altar as an offering to God. So in order to live the Christian life as we ought to, the first response to understanding the mercies of God toward us and for us and upon us is to present ourselves entirely for God's disposal. Not so that we are become part of the family of God, but because we are. You see, it's the outworking of understanding, the outworking of this knowledge of what God has already done for you by the mercies of God, all the pity God has shown you. Now, as the outworking of that, we offer ourselves completely to the disposal of God. You can see the implications, can't you? We need to be careful, though, when we think about this, because we cannot think that in our offering we're earning something from God. In other words, we're not saying, okay, God, here I am, use me, everything's about you, you know, and we think in that that we are somehow garnering God's favor. There's a tendency of some of us to take our practical sanctification, that is living obediently before God. We do this in evangelicalism. I see it all the time. when We we flip-flop our practical sanctification with justification. And we do that at breakneck speed. We say sometimes, yeah, I know I'm justified with God. I know I can't, I can't amend my justification. And then we disobey. And when we disobey, we understand that's wrong. And we think, well, God doesn't love me anymore. You know what we've just done? We've just based our justification on what we do. If I do it, God loves me. 
No, God already loves you. He loved you in Christ. He couldn't love you any more than He loves you, except He loves you in Christ. And you have the mercies of God on you all the time, so just offer yourself to Him. And when you disobey, go to Him and and ask for forgiveness and dust yourself off and begin to offer yourself completely to God. Not because you earn something, but because He deserves it. We're not obedient and therefore we earn some kind of salvation. No. There's only one sacrifice that's acceptable to God for salvation. That's Jesus Christ. Being in Christ, that equips us to this life of worship and service. So if we don't get that, then we need to go all the way back to chapter 1 of Romans and start to study that again all the way to where we are. Because somehow we've missed that. If somehow we adjust our thinking to to think that by my obedience I gain some kind of favor with God, then I have missed the understanding of what justification by faith alone is. And so we're not saying here that we can either save ourselves or we can help God save us in any kind of way. This is just a picture that Paul is drawing of the totality of our lives to be offered to God because we are saved by the mercies of God. Because Christ is the one and only acceptable offering to God for salvation because everything has been done for us, now we must present our lives to God as sacrifices. We are slaves of God. By the way, by the way, if I can just interject a side note here, we live in a country that touts our freedom. Right? We live in the free democracy of the world. We try to perpetuate our free democracy all over the world. Do you realize we live under the illusion that we are free? That doesn't mean we don't have some kind of freedoms within the country we live compared to other countries who have other rules and laws that people cannot do. But I want to remind all of us that we have never been free and we will never be free. And I don't mean as Americans. We were before Christ slaves of sin. And now that we are in Christ, we are slaves of righteousness. Remember chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, what Paul said there? I'll just read it. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. They were slaves either way. We're not free. We're not free. We were slaves of the devil and sin, but now we are slaves of a new master. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, but we are not free. As Christians, we are not free. And the beauty now is that in Christ, we are not forced slaves as we were under the old taskmaster of sin. When we were under sin, we were forced slaves. Now we are voluntary slaves. Not that we volunteered to get into the kingdom of God, but that because God has saved us, He has freed us from sin so that we are freed up voluntarily to serve righteousness as His new 
children. Before sin mastered us, we sinned because we're sinners. Because we were in bondage. We were owned by that. Sin is a ruthless slave master. Requires allegiance. That's what sin does. It requires allegiance. Everyone who knows not Christ is required to sin. That's who they are. They can do no other. But now we have a new master. And because we understand his mercies toward us, we desire to obey. He doesn't force us like sin did. When we truly understand his mercies, it's in our hearts. We desire to obey. He doesn't force us to obey. We need to obey, but he doesn't force us to obey. In fact, if that was the case, then God isn't God because he fails so often. Because we sin often. We are never free. Everybody in this world is either a slave to sin or a slave of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, it says. We are the possession of a new master, a merciful master. One who redeemed us. And that means, beloved, we have no right. We have no right to go on living under the old master's rules. No right. We are not our own. We are slaves of a new master. And now we are free to serve. We are free to serve. And so Paul says, present yourselves. Present your entire self. Present all of yourself. Renounce any right to yourself. You belong to somebody else now. You are not your own. Present yourselves. Present your bodies. Present all of you, what? As a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. Doesn't that seem strange to you? A living sacrifice. Seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? A sacrifice? Especially the Old Testament picture of sacrifice. A sacrifice was given. And when a sacrifice was given, what happened? Its life was taken. It was truly sacrificial. It The idea of sacrifice in our minds, and rightly so, conjures up the idea of death. Something being removed was always involved in sacrifice. Something being taken, something being given completely. It was gone. But here, Paul and Drews introduces this idea. A living sacrifice. There's a contrast going on in our minds. Those words, even in a sentence, don't seem to go together with our minds. Because there's this contrast going on between what is dead, sacrifice, and what is living. When something dies, that's the end. It's over. It's once and done. When the animal was offered in the Old Testament system, when it, was di- when it died, it was offered on the altar, that was it for the animal. No more. It's over. It's done. Couldn't be offered again. There was no second chance of offering from that animal. But when something is living... When something is living, there's an ongoing dynamic association with it. 
There is continual animation, if you will. And that is the contrast that Paul is making here. We are not once and done sacrifices like the Old Testament system. We are, no, our lives, as we embrace Jesus Christ by faith, we are now in Christ, we are equipped with Christ. He has done what needs to be done once and for all. And therefore, I can just live as God calls me to live. That means I have no right to go living as I want. We are living sacrifices. We go on presenting ourselves to God in worship and service continually, every day, every minute, never stopping. That's why we're living sacrifices. It's an ongoing reality. This is the difference between the dead animal and the living person. This is the difference between us and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. This is the contrast that Paul is making here. We, in the words of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, we are living stones. That's the idea again. Once again, are you, what are you talking about? A living rock? We are living stones. We're not dead rocks. We're not, as my father used to say, bumps on a log. No, we are living, building, we are the living building of Christ. We are living stones, and so our Christian living is to be continual. It's not just, oh, I accepted God, I'll go do whatever I want. No. I'm reminded again, the words of Paul in chapter 6, such an important chapter for us. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. There's that once for all. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There's the living part. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we'll be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We know this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who's died is freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. The death he died, he died to sin. How many times? Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That living is a continual reality. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, in light of that, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin, instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God, those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of, unri- of righteousness to God. Why? Because sin should not have master over you. You are not under law. You're not under sin. You're under grace. You know what he's saying? You're no longer the own, owned by the master of sin. Now you're owned by the master of mercies. You've been shown all the mercy Now live according to that. You see, beloved, this is the principle. This is the principle that Paul has been driving through the whole time. The idea of being a living sacrifice. That's to be characterizing our life. Living sacrifice. We're no longer dead. We're alive. And not only are we alive, Paul says, but we are set apart. Present your bodies a living, notice, and 
holy sacrifice. You know what that means? That means you can't be lackadaisical about your Christian living. You can't be, yeah, I'll live like a Christian today, tomorrow, I, I, don't, I don't feel like it. No, it's a holy offering. It's a set-apart offering. When, when people brought their sacrifice before God, even all the way back in Genesis, the early days of Genesis, when Cain and Abel were bringing their sacrifice, one was acceptable, one was not acceptable. Why? Because it wasn't the best. God requires the best. God requires the best. The sacrifice had to be the best. It had to be an unblemished lamb. It had to be the first fruits. It had to be the best part, the spotless one, the unblemished animal. All of that is a picture of holiness, set-apartness, separateness, unlike the restness. That's what it is. They're not like the rest. And so we have to present to God ourselves the best of ourselves. Our best obedience. Obedience that is free from anything that's unworthy of God. Obedience that adorns the gospel. Remember that? It must be what? Acceptable to God, he says. It's a, a self, completely and wholly presented to God, living and set apart, sacrificed to God, that's acceptable to God. In other words, present yourselves as something that's a sweet aroma to God. Something that's a sweet aroma. Because you're a Christian. Because you want to show your gratitude to Him. Because you just want to adorn the gospel of God in your life. Because your life is to be a sweet aroma to Him and for Him. That's the idea. I read it, part of it this morning. I want to, as we begin to just close our time down, I want to read again from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Because Paul and his words to the believers in Ephesus are the same words. In verses 1 and 2, again, a reminder to us, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up as an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There's the idea. Now jump down to verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what the will of the Lord is? The desire of God. Understand the desire of God. What's that? Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, living the Christian life is the reality of living my life out before all people so that they see Christ in me because I fear a holy God. When we don't do what God says, guess what's happening? There's no fear of God in our eyes. We bring a sacrifice before God and we think, oh yeah, he'll accept this. It's no big deal. It's, you know, I'm, listen, I'm giving it to him. 
It's a blemished sacrifice. It's ourselves, but not the best. Not the best. Paul says we present something that's a sweet aroma, something that's acceptable to God. Well-pleasing is the idea in that word. Jesus did it. He's our example. That's what Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says. Jesus did it. He offered himself as a sweet fragrance to God. Well, we have the mind of Christ. We have Christ living in us. We have the ability to do what's right. And so we are to live the same way. That's why Paul can say, be imitators of God. Why? Because you can. No, you're not going to be God. No, don't think you are a God. You're not. But you can be an imitator of God. We can glorify God in worship. We can show the excellencies of Him to a world around us in our whole person. We can be lights in a generation, a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul said. We can be a living sacrifice, set apart to God, set apart holy to God, a sweet aroma to the Master. This is, Paul says, our reasonable and right service to God. That's what that phrase means at the end. It's your spiritual service of worship. You want to serve God? You want to serve Him to the maximum? Then offer yourself as a sacrifice to Him every day, every moment of every day, in whatever way God is having you serve Him properly according to His Word. That's worship. That's worship. My prayer is that every day, every person in our midst would embrace these truths, not just in word, but that we would embrace them in deed. That we would do it. That our new master would be glorified. That others might see in us our master. They might see Christ in us and through us be attracted to him. That's my hope. That's our desire. That would be the joy of our heart. I'd like to get to verse 2, but there's far too much there for us. I trust these truths will be our motivation for the glory of God. I trust that what we heard this morning will be that which impels us to present ourselves to God every day. Not just come here on Sundays. Not just come here on Sundays consistently. All of that, but serve God every day, every moment. In your homes, with your children, with your spouse in ways that God would be honored so that He is seen in you and so that others see Christ through you that He might receive the glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time this morning, this exhortation by Your servant. Lord, we thank You that it has allowed us to think in our own hearts and our own minds about our own obedience. Areas where we may fall short, areas where you have called us into greater obedience, greater sacrifice. Lord, I pray that our sacrifice would not be blemished. Help us to to walk in obedience to you based upon our understanding of how much pity you have for us. 
And Lord, help us to serve one another as Christ has served us. Teach us by precept and by action to be imitators of you. And Lord, bring us back next time that we might understand greater how we are to be for your glory. For we know it's not what we do, but why we do what we do that matters. So thank you for that this morning. Bless our lives this day for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.